In this uh, evening's talk, I'd like to um, try to fill out some of the, the wider context of what we're doing here. Um, and so sometimes you can think when we're doing all the sitting and the walking, or we're doing our best to follow the instructions, say, just to, to be with the breath, to gently, patiently come back to the breath, or to notice the sensations in the body or hear the sounds of the birds. Um, we can get quite um, sort of aware of the detail of that. You know, so it, as if we're, we're quite focused in on doing those kind of things. Um, and it's very helpful also to think, well, why? Why do those kind of things? Or, uh, in other words, what's the relationship between the practices which we've been engaged in? Um, and this wider question, which is really the theme of the retreat, of a path of freedom. You know, what's the relationship between what we've been doing uh, and this aspiration to cultivate a path of freedom, which really means uh, a way of life dedicated to, to freedom. So I'll be exploring a few things this evening that hopefully um, add some of that, that wider context that speak to that question, well, why? What are we really doing here? Um, so I'd like to, to begin with um, something from uh, Christina Feldman, which I find very helpful. Uh, on this question. So she says, mindfulness is not only a technique or practice, but is concerned with the quality of wakeful presence and the willingness to learn that we bring to each moment in our lives. It is saturated with sensitivity and curiosity with the willingness to make peace with all moments and all things and the deep wish to be free wherever we are. So just to explore that a little bit, I mean this first um, section saying it's not only a technique or a practice, I find this very helpful. You know, if we think of our meditation practice as a technique, it can imply a certain fixed starting point. You know, here we are, uh, this is where we want to go. So we know where we are, we know where exactly where we want to go, and then we're seeing our meditation practice as a means to an end. It's some kind of method or technique where we get from A to B. But in that kind of uh, vision of practice, it all, for me at least, it all feels a little bit too kind of nailed down, a little bit too safe and secure and predictable. Uh, and also, I think when we think of practice like that, it very often can be quite frustrating. You know, we're like the, the child in the back of the car on a long journey. You know, are we, are we there yet? Are we nearly there yet? You know, we're trying to get to be whatever we might imagine that to be. And this kind of reaching forward into the next moment, checking our practice. Uh, you know, and behind that there can be all kinds of assumptions. You know, we know what our current situation is and maybe some idea that we're not good enough, there's not enough, something missing, something absent. And then we're conceiving meditation practice as a way to, uh, to deal, a way to plug that gap. 
So not only a technique or practice, but about the quality of wakeful presence. So really then this is about the, the whole of our lives. So I use this phrase on the, the opening evening that there are no breaks. And I, I remember thinking afterwards, oh, I wonder if I sh- should have explored that a little bit more. Cause <laughs> some people might just thought, oh, you know, that's, that's bad news. <laughs> uh, but there, there's something in a way that's, that's really good news. You know? So there's no break from this... Um, aspiration to bring this quality of wakeful presence to all of our lives. But of course this isn't, this isn't a kind of no-break as a fierce factory owner who's working you to the... Uh, it might have felt like that these couple of days, I don't know, but uh, you know, making you work your hands to the bone. But it can also be a no-break where there's, there's deep ease and peace and stillness. But there's no break, as it were, from the, the aspiration to really see deeply into our lives. You know, where, is, uh, where are the places where we struggle, where we get stuck, and where are the places uh, where, where freedom lies? And the willingness to learn that we bring to each moment in our lives. I, I really love this idea of, again, it's a change of perspective rather than looking at each moment in terms of what can I get from it. Is this a pleasant moment? Is this a moment where my sense of myself as being someone who's got it together, as a success, is being somehow reinforced? You know, or is this a painful moment, or a moment when maybe I feel more of a failure, or not quite up to scratch? But again, you can see how that could be quite a stressful way of viewing life, you know, constantly, you know, how's this moment out of ten <laughs> on the pleasure-pain continuum and or the you know, positive self-image continuum. But the willingness we bring to each moment, and that also means that everything that happens in our meditation practice, indeed everything that happens in our lives, is we can see it through this lens of, well, what's this teaching me? What's there to learn here? And, you know, thinking of all the things we've been talking about in some of the groups, you know, so whether it's having uh, music around, you know, where's this music going round and round in the, in the mind. Again, well, what can, we, what can we learn from that? Those kind of questions, like, is it, is it something in having that music there that is intrinsically difficult? That is an obstacle, that's a barrier? Or is it something about our relationship to it? that might be interesting to explore. And people talking about really quite interesting explorations with bodily sensations. Uh, You know, including uh, ones that can seem more unpleasant, more painful. And again, there's a lot to learn from there. Where do we stay with it? Where is staying with it a sense of helpful exploration? Uh, when does that drift into masochism? <laughs> and they're kind of, ah, you know, I've got to stick with this no matter what. So we, we're learning, you see, it's a, you know, this thing about you know, how to be with our experience. So it's a lovely perspective, how can I learn from each moment? Saturated with sensitivity and curiosity. Mm. Sensitive is one of those 
interesting words, isn't it? That almost has a double meaning, you know. You say, I mean, it's, it's like a, sometimes it can feel, I don't know, for you, but both a kind of blessing and a curse to be sensitive. Yeah, it means we feel things deeply. And it's, uh, you know, again, I'm speaking personally, sometimes it's, you know, you can feel almost a, a longing or a slight envy of those people who don't seem to think, feel things quite so deeply at times. Because you know, being sensitive means we're, we're open to our vulnerability. Um, but even with the painful aspects of that, it has this feeling of being in touch, being connected with, which ultimately is really, really freeing to be sensitive. Hmm. And to be curious. Again, this is the, the, the aspect of wanting to learn. I find, again, in, in many of the um, group meetings that we've had, I mean, what I, I often feel I'm wanting to do or encouraging people to do is to, to turn something into an exploration. So to really encourage our sense of curiosity. And that's why um, quite often it might be unhelpful as a teacher to have too much of a set answer. You know, what do I do if this happens? And if I just say X, as if I knew, you know, exactly the right answer anyway, X, then it's like, okay, then the sort of curiosity's almost died down, hasn't it? It's gone. You know, that was the problem, there's the answer, just get on with it. But often it feels to me more helpful to do something, well, ah, let's explore. Let's cultivate this, you know, this curiosity. I mean, Paul's re you know, raised uh, this question that people sometimes, you know, wonder about. Should I be with the breath in the nostrils or the chest area or the belly or the whole sense of the breath? And again, rather than thinking, let me look for the right answer, but to be curious, what's it like? And that curiosity and that investigation when it comes to our practice really brings a lot of energy. You know, really trying to think, well, what's going on? What's happening? And she says also the willingness to make peace with all moments and all things and the deep wish to be free wherever we are. Again, it's a beautiful aspiration, the willingness to make peace with all moments, which when we reflect on it must include, of course, the difficult moments. I don't think there's anything in there that's um, promising or advertising an end of difficult moments, an end of, say, having unpleasant uh, situations or an end of anybody ever criticizing us or blaming us or an end of not being able to get what we want. So even in the middle of all of those moments too, what would it mean to be free? And so seeing what that's like in our meditation experience, I mean, it's such a mirror of what's happening in our mind being on retreat, which is really what it's, what it's there for. But those, those times in practice when we're, we're holding out for a better moment, you know, this is okay, but a bit sleepy now, and a bit of a twinge in the shoulder. But if I just hang on, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like a sort of projection of well, what's next, what's better. 
And so this one phrase I find helpful with this is this, this phrase, it's, it's already here, which is a useful, skillful means, I think. You know, it's sort of, what does it mean to think that what we're looking for is already here? And then sometimes we might get philosophical about that. Well, what's that? What's the it? Where is it? <laughs> and then we're off into a different mode. So, you know, without trying to kind of work it out intellectually, what it is and where it is and all that. But it's already here. You'll see what that does to the heart. You know, it's here in the middle of the twinge in the ankle or the busy mind or the mind replaying that song that you can't get out of your head. Because <laughs> yeah. it frees us from being uh, almost a hostage to situations. If we feel that our well-being is so tightly defined, I'll be okay if. And then we've got a whole list of conditions that need to be in place. And then life can feel quite quite stressful. I mean, if you feel like that on retreat. So, you know, I'm looking forward to this moment in meditation when, well, first of all, I'm going to have no bodily, no unpleasant bodily sensation, first on the list. <laughs> and then my mind's going to be really clear, and I'm going to be with the breath, and nothing else is going to interrupt. That'll be great, too. I have that one. And I'm not going to have any thoughts from work or family, or we'll get rid of all of those. <laughs> and we can see, though, when it's like that, it feels, I mean, even just describing it now, it kind of feels a bit, a bit tense. Because we might even, luckily, start ticking off some of these. Ah, oh, now the body's rather good in this sitting. You know, nine out of ten for bodily comfort, that's good. Yeah. But then one of these other things comes in. So you, can you see how it feels quite, quite stressful? It's like, you know, because, ah, oh, trying to hold it all together. So this piece of, of kind of releasing, letting go, and, and it's more within what is happening. And we're not, we're not this hostage to the particulars of our experience. And we may be able to get a sense of what she's talking about here, the, the wish to be free wherever we are. So also wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the, the climate of our practice, some of the assumptions that might be around as we uh, come to, to meditate, and just bringing them more to, uh, making them more conscious, bringing them more to mind. Um, and one of them that I think is well worth exploring is whether we're engaged in a kind of self-improvement project. As one of the the kind of views or attitudes that can come in to meditation that might say something like, I'm not good enough as I am. There's something missing, flawed, something wrong with me that needs to be fixed. And this can be quite, quite a deep belief. It might be operating on many, many different levels. And when we're practicing with that attitude, it's like it's necessarily going to mean that certain things are not going to be welcome in our experience. So if we feel angry or frustrated or perhaps full of sorrow, or we notice quite there's a lot of envy towards somebody coming up, 
then all of these things get interpreted through that lens. It's actually a lens of self. So rather than being mindful of thoughts, feelings, sensations as they come and go, it's being filtered through a lens of this is the kind of person that I am and actually it's not quite good enough. And so this practice is a way of kind of somehow knocking me into shape. (laughs) And again when that's around it can feel, well it can feel difficult and actually really quite endless. Can feel quite endless, and it can feel sometimes we may have moments when it feels it's it's a a success, it's working, because we may have sittings where those things that we deem to be unacceptable don't arise, and then we think, ah, getting there, managing to free myself, purge myself of these things that really shouldn't be around, not allowed. (laughs) Um, I've been reading uh, this wonderful book uh, by Barry Majid. It's, very, it's a lovely title, it's called Ending the Pursuit of Happiness. <laughs> so I don't know what his sales are, but <laughs> whether, <laughs> what his publishers thought about that. You know. But it, it's an interesting title, so it, it's, you know, it's kind of like letting go, it's letting go of a certain kind of project of pursuing a particular I- image of happiness. But it's a bit like ending the pursuit of self-improvement which is actually uh, deeply liberating. Uh, These notions of um, being perfect, these idealistic notions of perfection that we might have, that we then use to to judge our practice. It's just interesting to notice whether that's around. He talks about um, our secret practice. I find rather an interesting idea. So it's like, um, why are we really meditating? Do we have some idea? What are the um, curative fantasies? Another phrase he uses. Uh, What are we deeply hoping that this is going to bring for us? And to make that conscious and to see, you know, elements of that, those ideas that may themselves be a kind of trap. And so he, he explores how ideas, for instance, around awakening or enlightenment could themselves at times become another kind of trap. That, that becomes a kind of idealized perception or an idealized sense of what we're looking for that lies in the future. And all of our unconscious hopes and fantasies projected onto this thing. And so, you know, so that phrase of Christina's that really stood out for me, you know, saturated with sensitivity. But perhaps sometimes our idealized practice is perhaps not to be sensitive, to be invulnerable, to be, here I am, just untouched by the world, you know, just floating through life in just this eternal bliss. Economic crises, environmental challenges, loss of loved ones, but I'm just this force field of bliss and enlightenment with a big E, just untouchable. (laughs) It's just interesting to notice whether that kind of of sort of fantasy can be around. There's some lovely stories I've heard which have really helped me to 
um, to sort of see into that and release some of those those kind of ideas. One is of a, a Zen teacher who was presiding over the funeral of a friend and uh, was saying, uh, I'm, I can't, I'm afraid, remember the precise things, but perhaps saying something like, please take this not exact uh, sort of literal remembering, but, you know, say maybe form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, and perceptions are impermanent. It's one of the chants that we do sometimes. So really going through this impermanence and this uh, universal truth in quite a clear way, and then stopping and starting to cry because he missed his friend. And you know, to me, that's really beautiful, that image of the practice. So this deep insight into impermanence, into change, yes, was leading to a kind of uh, depth of freedom, but that was nothing that denied the humanity of feeling grief and loss as a friend uh, passes away, as a friend dies. And the more I think about that as well, I mean, who would, do we, would we really want to not feel those things? You know, somebody's died and we just, I'm fine <laughs> with my bliss force field. Um, you know, and, and again, stories of, of the, the Dalai Lama as well, hearing the conditions that uh, nuns in, uh, in, in certain monasteries in Tibet and the, the terrible conditions that they're enduring. And again, really listening to that and, and being touched by that and moved to tears. And this is really what uh, the compassionate heart, a compassionate heart is all about, isn't it? To be, to hear the cries of the world. It's uh, Kuan Yin, the one who hears the cries of the world, to be touched by something. And then to be able to respond. So that sensitivity yeah, can also be a place of, of strength and wisdom and connection. And there's some steadiness within that. But not a cold cut off in vulnerability. So another helpful perspective on practice, if we begin to uh, notice and helpfully question the self-improvement model, is that practice is in many ways about relinquishing. It's not so much about gaining and achieving and uh, developing a more spiritual sense of self, or sometimes called spiritual materialism you know, a new and improved version, but by about relinquishing. Um, and so we can see this in the uh, teaching, the, a teaching called the, the Fetters. And so the different uh, sort of aspects of awakening seen as uh, a letting go of certain things. And uh, one of these things that's, that's let go of is uh, self-view. Self-view. And what this means is uh, interpreting, seeing the different elements of experience in terms of being some kind of definition of who I am, who you are, 
some kind of permanent essence. And so we can notice when we, when we do that in, in our practice. So let's say we're um, feeling quite sleepy in the, the afternoon and then maybe feeling quite frustrated in relation to the sleepiness. Just noticing those times when that might grow and develop almost into a story about me. You know, what does this mean about me that I always get so sleepy? What am I avoiding? Well, some aspect of my personality I can't quite face. And there's a story, yeah, a story about me. Whereas from the perspective of not self, as we begin to let go of this self you, we can just see, okay, so the, the body is sleepy. There's some frustration arisen. Can we be with that? What's that for us? How does that manifest? Certain experiences in the body, certain thoughts. And then we look at them more closely. And we see that they're ephemeral. They come and they go. They're not so fixed. An interesting practice when you try and look at anything. What happens to it? You can almost have this feeling when you look so closely that it, that it disappears. You know, where is the frustration really? I'm frustrated. Okay, well, let's look at that. So there was that fleeting thought, I can't do this, this is too much. But where's that thought gone? <laughs> it comes and it goes, it pops in and suddenly seems loud and the definition of the moment. It might be feelings in the body, again, but as we look at those, we can see that they have this quality of coming, going not so solid. And so the more we tune into this, this kind of moment-to-moment -moment flow of experience, the tendency to make a me out of it uh, can be really lessened. Yeah. There's a, a story of uh, somebody who went to see a, a meditation teacher and said, um, I've had this really important insight. You know, I noticed that I had this uh, pain, stiffness in my shoulder. And I, and I thought about that and I realized it's actually because I'm uptight. This is where I carry tension. I carry tension in my shoulder. And I thought about it a bit more and I realized that I, I do this at work. Uh, and I do this with my wife. Um, and it, you know, it's been a really long pattern and I, and I explored it a little bit more and realized actually my, my dad was like this too. And when I was growing up, this was what we did. And, and, and you know, it was really difficult that we just had this, this pattern. And this went on for a while, and then the teacher said, Ah, oh, you noticed a tension in your shoulder. <laughs> and he started to go, Yeah, I know it's a tension. And then it's a whole big, big, long story about it again. And then he just kept bringing back to you, So you noticed a tension in your shoulder. <laughs> and then I think, you know, after a while, there sort of became some clarity around that. But it's a lovely example of, how, of what we can do how we can weave a story about our lives, about our personalities, about our essence, out of really quite fleeting moments of experience. This proliferation of thoughts around a particular experience. Something just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows, and then suddenly either somebody or we just begin to see, wow, it's like it's a whole, a whole dream. You know, this, this practice is, is all about waking up. Well, what does that mean if that's not this curative fantasy that Barry Magid was talking about? What does it mean to wake up? But we can notice these, 
these times when it really is like we're in a dream. And like dreams, you know, when do you notice you're in a dream? When we wake up, yeah? <laughs> and you go, oh, I was just dreaming. <laughs> I like to think, I mean, again, when you think about this dreamlike nature of much of our experience, what we've been doing over the last couple of days, there is a level that really you've just been sitting in a hall and walking up and down. <laughs> if you think about it, we say, well, what's been happening on in your retreat? That's what we've been doing on a physical level. <laughs> and yet, what dramas have been going on in our minds? You know, and I really do mean our minds as well. I don't mean <laughs> Paul and I have just been sitting here. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in, our, in our minds, you know, what's been going on? You can see how a whole world is created. These personal worlds, you know, are created and dissolved, created and dissolved. And sometimes they're lovely realms. And sometimes they're more challenging, more difficult. And so, in a way, you can see this is a, again, as I began saying, what's the wider context of the practice, but the ability to just come back to the pain in the shoulder simply as a pain in the shoulder, sensations in the shoulder. The capacity to return to the breath. All of these things that look very simple are ways of uh, revealing that dreamlike, uh, those dreamlike worlds that we can become so absorbed in. It begins to reveal their um, ephemeral nature, begin to see that they're not the, the final story. And so another of the things that we can begin to, to relinquish as we practice, uh, another of these uh, fetters, is said to be uh, the fetter of, of doubt uh, that Paul was um, referring to, also one of the hindrances. And so this again is a very, very helpful thing to reflect upon. And I think to, to begin to relinquish doubt doesn't mean to take on any um, sort of blind or intransigent faith or to um, grasp certain beliefs or certain belief systems. I mean, which very often can, can also be a real place of clinging, can't they? You know, when you feel... Um, you relate to a certain, certain set of ideas as a belief system. It gives us a certain, a certain feeling of security, but it can also be, I don't know, we can feel a bit nervous if somebody threatens it. <laughs> uh, and it feels like it, it explains everything. And we can relate to a set of ideas as if it makes life simple, predictable. We've got all the answers in a box. So I think beginning to let go of doubt doesn't mean that kind of thing, right, I'm just going to hold on to these things no matter what. But I think what helps to uh, 
to soften, to let go of that, is the more that we can see really very clearly, very, very directly in our own experience what frees the heart. Yeah. There's a, on a, one Buddhist website, there's a, a very uh, kind of, on one sense, common sense question somebody had asked. They said, well, what do Buddhists believe? And the answer I thought was rather good. It said something like, well, Buddhists believe in all kinds of things, but belief isn't one of them. <laughs> it was quite clever. <laughs> and and uh, so it's interesting. So again, say so teaching like the Four Noble Truths, it really it doesn't particularly help us to say, well, I believe that. You know, I believe in the Four Noble Truths. The question is, can we see that in our own experience? Can we see that in our own experience? And I think sometimes some of these uh, insights or realizations, they can be quite a hard, hard one in a way. So it requires a certain kind of wise disillusionment. And so I'll just mention one of these, these things. But when we can feel... Um, so the teachings may tell us that, you know, if we grip or grasp anything, if we try to find any permanent, lasting satisfaction in the changing conditions of the world, then we will struggle. So this can be a core teaching. Yeah? We try to grip and grasp a relationship or a house or a job or a situation in life or a material possession as if this is the answer. You know, I've found the answer, and it's this meditation bowl. <laughs> I've got it. Yeah, I grip it and hold it, and keep it close to me, and make sure Paul doesn't want it. <laughs> it is interesting, that, because whenever we do that, it, I can find it, it's really quite bodily. As soon as I even do that to demonstrate, I actually do feel slightly more threatened by you all. <laughs> you know? It's like, who's, I'm now thinking, who wants this? Who wants my well-being? You know, that whole... Oh. Anyway, I can, <laughs> I'll put it down before I make myself feel, feel worse. But you can say, well, you know, when we do that with anything, there's a struggle. So the thing really is not just say, great, that sounds great, I believe that. But to see it more and more in our experience, and, and this is the wise disillusionment, because we just tune in and notice, you know, whenever that happens. Yeah, tune in and notice whenever that happens. And I don't want to sound like I'm not a romantic. <laughs> uh, and, but, you know, say, for instance, relationship life might be one of those areas where we might have done that several times. You know, that feeling when you're first, that first kind of delight and joy of infatuation or the absolute delight in meeting a, a person who you just think, you can't see, they just look perfect. You know that kind of, <laughs> you know, all the things that later on will be seen in a very different light <laughs> in that initial moment. We can see it, there's this rather, in its own way, rather lovely and intoxicating spell. But we know that then as a relationship matures, those initial projections and, you know, sort of longings for perfection, as they're disappointed, then, you know, then there's the chance to relate in a new way. And this is why I'm not a, an anti-romantic. 
They don't certainly mean to imply by that that we then give up on relationships. But there's a different kind of relationship that comes, isn't there? As we're letting go of the feeling of it's going to be hearts and flowers and wonderful. and There's something more real. And, and I think that's what we can see more and more in all of those areas in life. I mean, you know, we can... Perhaps it's happened to you on this retreat. If you had idealized notions of what it might be like to come to Guy House, oh, Guy House, that'll be great, Devon. And you fall in love with it, like you might do with a person. And then you get here and, metaphorically speaking, realize Guy House leaves its socks on the floor <laughs> and doesn't always do the washing up or what happens in your relationship. Or more likely here, you know, that your knees hurt or sittings aren't quite as long or too long or queues a bit longer than you wanted. Would have been nice to have my own room. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't, I don't know if you have these things. But, but you can see that whenever we think, ah, oh, this is it, there's a certain movement to say, yeah, got it. that inevitably leads to that disillusionment. So as we, we see that again and again and again, this is we can, again back to Christina, the, the willingness to learn from each moment. Are we alive to the lessons life is bringing us? Because if we're not alive, then that's when we're on the, on the wheel, aren't we? We're just going round and round and round and round. Again, it's like the... I don't know, the umpteenth relationship. Oh, no, maybe this one, this will be the one that just is always like that. Or the umpteenth spiritual tradition. This is the one with no shadow side and no <laughs> problems. This is the one that's going to deliver for me. <laughs> you know. So rather than just doing that, ah, oh, we begin to wake up. And as we do that, that opens a space that's not at all resigned or depressed. This is very important. There's, again, a shadow side to this teaching is, you know, something like, uh, well, you know, relationships don't work out, jobs don't work out, things, nothing works out, why bother? <laughs> and you're in a very, I mean, this is a sort of more depressed state of mind, you know, why bother with anything, that kind of thing. But what we, we see in practice is that as we release the clinging and the gripping and the grasping around those experiences, that there's a more fundamental, basic okayness, a sense of uh, completion that never really depended on anything's being perfect. So there's a much more... Uh, something we can trust. And I think this is again what really softens, cuts through the doubt, something we can really trust. Hmm. I guess that leads me you know, back to that statement I made earlier, that it, it's already here. It's already here. And from that more trusting stance, or that more trusting way of being, we're then free. 
to engage more compassionately with all of those things, the jobs, the relationships, material things, situations. But we're more free to creatively engage with those without that sense of trying to squeeze from them some sort of ultimate security or stability. And we're not doing that, and then we're much more free to engage in a creative way. So let's uh, just sit quietly for a couple of minutes, just to <coughs> allow the words of the talk to to settle. <coughs> 